This episode is brought to you by Trials by Ordeal. Do you have a debate or dilemma that needs to be settled in a final, scientific manner? Ordeal is the trusted name in solutions to the unsoluble. Say you're working on your dissertation and you've come to an impasse with your doctoral committee. Let me tell you, when you pour kerosene on the kindling of your trial by fire by ordeal and strap yourself to the post, they'll start to recognize the persuasiveness of your argument. Do your neighbors think you're a witch? Trial by water is the no questions asked proof that you haven't been hexing anyone's cattle. Do you and the guy next door disagree over who's responsible for replacing the fence between your yards? Are you going to leave the decision to a trial by 12 people who can't figure out how to get out of jury duty? You need trial by combat to demonstrate that you have the legal and ethical high ground. And now when our listeners use the promo code reread, one word, they'll get two birthday candles so their kids can resolve their disagreements like the Burmese people. The one with the last candle to burn down was in the right. What a great introduction of moral philosophy. And thank you Trials by Ordeal for sponsoring the Rereading Wolf podcast. Warning, the following discussion is deliberately riddled with spoilers and unhinged speculation on this nearly 40-year-old book, Gene Wolfe's The Book of the New Sun. You can't read a Gene Wolfe story. You can only reread a Gene Wolfe story. Welcome to Rereading Wolfe. We don't pretend that this is the first time you and we have read these books. We want to understand them in as much detail as possible, and that means considering the works as a whole. Hi, I'm James Wynn. And I'm Craig Brewer. Craig, hit the music. We have errata. You know, this isn't really a correction, but it is errata. It's just an angle that we didn't touch on. And I actually wish we had, Mm -hmm. because I think it's a very good point. Yeah. On Facebook, Michael Grant points out that Agia is fine with Severian getting secret notes until he mentions his connection to Vodalus and Hildegrin's connection to Vodalus. And that's actually true and pretty compelling. I think that he's onto something. I, so I asked, well, how do you theorize that Hildegrin being connected to Vodalus changes anything? She already knew Hildegrin doesn't like her. And, you know, it, it provokes a lot of questions. Um, I said, well, do you think that there's bad blood between her and the Vodalari? Vodalus doesn't seem to recognize any bad history between them when they're face-to-face in Citadel of the Autark. However, it is true that she relinquishes whatever opportunity she had to kill Severian herself before or after killing Vodalus. I do think there's something there. So I said, well, you know, what do you think it is? And Michael says, Well, at this point, your guess is as good as mine. It it may well be that we're all making too much out of Asia, that she's really just a petty criminal, and that learning that Severian is connected to someone powerful and dangerous as Vodalus makes her realize how far in over her head she is in trying to con him. But that's not a terribly satisfying theory. And (laughs) well, I, I agree. It is unsatisfying. And also when we know that she replaces Vodalus in yeah. the end, right? Like that, the fact that she becomes that new figure for whatever it is that he is, 
makes that that stand out even more yeah, at the beginning. Yeah. Now, I got to admit, I don't see any of the even wrong ideological reasons. You know, I mean, even if Vodalus was just in this as a way to, you know, aggrandize himself and make himself look bigger and to, you know, whatever, um, to sort of do the aristocratic thing which is what they, they ultimately say that he's doing is just mm -hmm. keeping doing the status quo, but in an exciting way. Right. Um, I don't really see how Asia would share either side of that. I mean, maybe, maybe I guess you could say that as a really, maybe, or I don't know, maybe on the opposite side, maybe she really would have some kind of, I don't know, more populist <laughs> approach <laughs> to, to whatever kind of rebellion that Vodalus is doing because of where she's come from. But she, you know, obviously the reason she gets into all of this and even gets in that point is to get revenge with Severian. Yeah. I don't know, unless you want to really start to dig deep and, and figure out a much more complicated backstory with her, you know, hating Severian for more or fewer personal reasons and more because of maybe what he represents or something. And that leads into why she's fascinated with Vodalus. I don't know. I mean, it seems like there, it's ripe for a kind of story, but at that point feels a little bit more like fan fiction <laughs> than, than actually figuring out clues. I don't know. There's um, so much unsatisfying about yeah. Raja. She's just totally confusing. I, I, I don't think she's what she seems, but I can't get a consistent bead on her. It's just weird. Yeah. And I suppose we do have to admit that sometimes going as close as we do and, and looking at every single thing as a clue can lead you, make things even more confusing. But at the same time, it's hard to know then, well, what aspects of what yeah. she does that seem weird are the right ones and which are just, you know, interesting. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. I've, I've said it before. Sometimes you're following breadcrumbs and sometimes Wolf is just emptying his pockets. So I still think the, the thing that gets me and that has is why I've gone down so many uh, lanes here with Ajia is just because I still don't feel like it's the extremes that she goes to. I don't know why I'm convinced that him killing her brother isn't enough. Like it just it seems like that's not enough to make her want to have such extreme revenge and maybe that's my problem maybe yeah. it's just because i just well don't for me see it's her character as much for me it's all of the elusive structure underneath that wolf has built in to her and it feels like there's something else going on i don't know i don't know i want to know but i i hope that we're going to discover that there's something we've been missing about yeah. Aja that will suddenly reveal itself. But and I still want her to be a witch. So just so I'll know more about the witches or on the run from a witches. She's afraid of snakes. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Also on Facebook, this is another, not a correction, but still errata. Sean Michael Robinson chimed in about the end of lost loves. He says, Dorcas tells Severian later. That's in chapter 30 that her hesitancy about getting new clothes. She says that she did want new clothes, but she didn't want to get them on that day, on that occasion, when she believed Severian would die. Then it would always remind her of that. As for Severian's wine analyzing abilities, given how polluted the guile is, it is reasonable to assume that like other cultures sprung from around less desirable sources of water, the citizens of Nessus might drink mild wines with little alcoholic content with 
most meals simply because the water is bad. And that's, well, that's a very good point. And it's a very good clarification. Yeah. And they talk about matcha a lot yeah. too, right? The South American drink, which, mm-hmm. which I tried specifically because of this book years ago. And loved it. Uh, kind of. <laughs> it goes up and down. I actually always have some now. Like there are occasions where I'm like, I, I kind of want to have some right now, but mm. it's, but it hasn't by any means replaced coffee. <laughs> well, you know, it's just so hard to keep the whole book in perspective while we're doing this and to consider every angle. So thanks, Michael Grant and Sean Michael Robinson for helping us. And if you are getting sick of Agia, of us talking about her, we're getting there. We're yeah, getting yeah, there. yeah. Eventually, she's we're going to cut her loose and she'll only make guest appearances from time to time. And then it'll be Dorcas and Jalenta, and there's nothing complicated or controversial about Jalenta. No, no one's ever argued about that. Mm -hmm. Also on Facebook, Mickey Smith says, listening to the Hildegrin episode, I had an errant thought. When listening to the discussion of Dorcas saying sun, after Severian mentions the sunny sand gardens, the word sun started to semantically satiate. That yeah, That's where you say a word so many times until it loses its meaning in your mind. I heard it just enough times that I remembered what I think is Wolf's favorite pun, that sun is a homophone for son, as in, you know, father and son. I think there's a chance that Dorcas, upon seeing Severian's face, so similar to her son's, Owen's, Severian's father, and hearing him say Sonny makes maybe even a subconscious connection to her son. It would give a bit of pragmatic reason for her to say that single word. I also like it that it plays on the entire series, being from Severian's point of view. But to Severian, she's just saying son, S-U-N. And, you know, Mickey, that's actually a very nice bit of Wolfian perspective. It could well be true. Yeah, I like it just because it adds so much to that moment which was already sort of overdetermined because of the symbolism of the sun and the book of the mm-hmm. new sun and everything else. But to add that layer too is just cool. Yeah. yeah. So I'm, I am totally on board with that. <laughs> Adam Ames posted on Facebook for the first time to say that he's enjoying it. I am so enjoying this podcast, simultaneous conversations via all the various formats. I am at this moment on episode for chapter 22, Dorcas, and saw there's a new one uploaded. So much obvious effort is spent on these quality discussions. I wish I could play with time and shoot ahead to listen to all your future podcasts now. You're teaching me a very important lesson about anticipation and lack of immediate gratification. Thanks again. I wish we could shoot ahead to the future so that they'd be done. (laughs) Well, you are a workaholic. That's My mother has the same problem. She starts these projects and then she just spends her time in agony. I want this to be done already. (laughs) Well, uh, Frank Roberts pointed out that uh, given the events in question will not happen until the the 260,000th, 907th century, there's really no hurry. (laughs) Internaut hint us up on email with a theory that at first I thought it was about Father Aniri's mirrors, but it was about a discussion related to the Lake of Birds and the sacred windows in the Book of the Long Sun. Uh, don't worry, this isn't a spoiler really, but if you're worried about it, jump ahead two minutes. In the Long Sun, the gods sometimes talk to people through these monitors, and through those monitors, they can actually possess them through their eyes. And This connects to our conversation with Michael Swanwick about how you can never know if Wolf is referring to a contemporary industrial technology that he's aware of and you are not. 
Anyway, Internet said, you mentioned the technological basis for the Long Sun possessions, and I had to chime in. This is actually a real technology that we have, at minimum, the naive version of it. And he linked to a Wikipedia article on optogenetics. Optogenetics is a biological technique that involves the use of light to control neurons that have been genetically modified to express light-sensitive ion channels. It uses a combination of techniques from optics and genetics to control the activities of the individual neurons in living tissues, even with freely moving animals. And, you know, they tried this out on mice and they've been able to control them with light. He figures Gene Wolfe was aware of the technology, but then he came back to say that he'd mentioned all this to Earthlister Gorn and said that, and, and he said that Long Sun was published a decade before optogenetics took off. Gorn said, there's also nothing about genetic engineering of that sort, not of population-wide optogenetic engineering for possession. It's probably just more in the vein of hypnosis or epilepsy. Internaut was disheartened, but I'm not so sure. First of all, at one point, the goddess Echidna summons snakes out of all the backyard gardens in the area. I think widespread genetic tinkering is the easiest explanation for a lot of things we see. Also, you know, these concepts show up in scientific papers well before they reach the level of experimentation. But if Wolf had not already heard of it, then he at least predicted the technology. And at last, Craig, we got a review on Apple Podcasts. The shortest one so far, I think, Tim. <laughs> yeah. It's not a competition, people. This one is from Professor Garrison, who listens to the podcast on YouTube. Uh, by the way, we have over 100 subscribers on YouTube now. His review is entitled, Love It. And he says, makes other Gene Wolf podcast cute little niche podcasts. Aww. Five stars. <laughs> Thank you so much, Professor Garrison. I'm glad you're enjoying it. Yes, indeed. And you know what else I enjoy, Craig? I enjoy a good public fight. <laughs> I thought you were going to say public flogging. For <laughs> Well, that's another chapter. So. <laughs> so let's go ahead and get to it. Chapter 27. Is he dead? Severian starts this chapter with an interesting introduction. The sanguinary fields of which all my readers will have heard, though some, I hope, will never have visited. So at this moment, Severian seems to be imagining a Commonwealth audience. Mm -hmm. He has yet to consider, as he will later in this narration, what he will eventually do with this book. Yeah, and it's also very contemporary, right? Like he's mm -hmm. he talks about how he wanted to keep the book for, if not for posterity, at least he expected it to be hidden in Elton's library forever. Right. Um, so yeah, now to be talking about something that's been there, although I guess things in Nessus and in Earth at this point have stayed around for millennia, so it wouldn't who knows, be yeah, too much stretch, yeah. Also, is he relating an attitude toward dueling that we've picked up on from people like Hildegrin, uh, an attitude common in the early nineteenth century? that it was disreputable, to use an old word, that it is dissolute, degenerate, and immoral. And there's that flower of dissolution title. Well, I kind of like that approach because he definitely is going to talk about why it's better than murder, you know, in, in just a few paragraphs here. Right. Um, and he goes, does give a defense of it. So it's kind of a neat way to think that maybe what he's doing here is uh, sort of suggesting 
that yeah i mean you know maybe you have heard of this thing um yeah. but but hopefully you won't have sullied yourself with it you know it, it but i like the idea that that's maybe to him an old-fashioned idea yeah <laughs> well like yeah maybe he's comes to the conclusion that it's a necessary evil to some extent i don't mm-hmm. know the sanguinary fields are in the northwest of the built sections of nessus as he calls them this is the first time Nessus is referred to as the capital of the Commonwealth. And that seems obvious enough. It's clearly the largest city in the Commonwealth. But being the capital definitively means it is the seat of government. And Nessus is, of course, not the seat of government. That is right. at House Absolute. So perhaps being the capital is just a convention from a time before the House Absolute. It could be. And there's often, they talk so much about how the house absolute moves. And there's even suggestions too. like, I mean, even Alton says it about how the house absolute can spread in different places. And so it could be one of those things like wherever the autarch is, that's partly where the house absolute is hmm. too. So if you need a stable place, at least Nessus is the capital. And I mean, I think we get the sense that at one point, the Citadel had been the seat, but we also know that even Typhon is never pictured in Nessus, right? Like the only times we yeah. see him are when he's out in the, the mountains. North, right so, out in the yeah. north. The fields themselves are located between, quote, a residential enclave of city armagers and the barracks and stables of the, I'm going to mess this one up, the Zenaji of the Blue Demarchi. That's probably how I would have said it before. That's the only time we get that term too, Zanaji. Mm-hmm. I didn't, it doesn't show up. And, and so it's not clear to me whether that was supposed to be like a proper noun or whether it's like designates, you know, a certain kind of troop. I just wasn't sure. We see Demarchi again. Mm-hmm. It came up before. They were bringing prisoners to the tower. Right. And it was obvious With- that they had seen battle though. Right. And we don't get the blue Demarchi again, though, do we? Like as if it was no, this specific no. regiment. Yeah. So it's it's one of the few times that they're sort of labeled out as, you know, a specific group of military like that. Well, Zenaji is a French word. So any French speakers out there can help me out with that pronunciation. <laughs> uh, there is a lot to unpack here. Uh, what is a city armature? Obviously, it's a body comprised of armature class with special duties relating to the city's defense, but it's not a barrack. So I guess they live there with their families. I don't know. On the other side are the barracks and stable of the Zanaji of the Blue Demarchi. And Wolf actually does give us help with that word Zanaji in Castle of the Otter and Castle of Days. Wolf says, a cavalry unit normally consisting of about 500 men, but the soldiers in question are the blue Dimarchi. Today, we would say something like the blue armored infantry. And they appear to be organized along infantry lines and commanded by a chiliarch, so they can be assumed to have nominal strength of a thousand. So a large group. Yeah. <laughs> and if they're cavalry, then yeah, that's that's quite a large structure or at least set of structures that he's talking about to have both barracks and stables. Yeah. And they're demarchi, which means that they're trained to fight two different ways. Uh, in the Greek, they were cavalry who would then have to quickly jump off their horses and be infantry. You know, here maybe they are both troops to fight foreign wars and also 
local police mm-hmm. because they are they do come and, and bring prisoners to the Madachin. Yeah. And I think it's easy at this point to kind of think of lots of things still in Nessus because your inside a wall is really squished together. But we got to remember, too, that they talked about the end of Lost Loves being its own institution in a place where you can't have regular buildings mm-hmm. that near the field. So you've got this massive set of fields here that are bordered by an area where there can't be buildings. But then that kind of area itself is in between these other sets of armature apartments or whatever, or or condos or whatever they are. And um, then you've got the whole barracks and the stables uh, in between them and the wall. So this is still a massive area. But why are they the blue Demarchi? Well, maybe because they have blue uniforms. That's what Lexicon Earthist suggests. Uh, perhaps, though, they originally had some sort of religious association. Maybe it had to do with the claw. It'd be the light of the claw. Yep. Yeah. It would make more sense than the Pellerine's red hoods. Yeah. It is true that one thing to remember, too, here is that now we're at the wall and we're talking about there being barracks. So the wall is still seeming very much like a military structure, right? And we're close to a gate, too. So right. uh, this is where you know, a big legion of special troops are. And we know we're going to find out, of course, soon enough that there are lots of special, even more special troops inside <laughs> the wall. But yeah, so this is still very much a, a much more military area than we're used to. And maybe that accounts for why the whole thing of the duel is normal here. I mean, if we've got armagers and people various, very worried oh, about yeah. their rank, um, then yeah, maybe this is just because you have all these people of that class in this area, that this is the common way that, you know, minor aristocrats and officers and whatnot will be dealing with their issues. Well, of course, Severian does say that they are near the wall, but then he stipulates that the wall is still leagues away of Mm -hmm. hard walking by twisted avenues from the actual base. This implies to me that although regular private construction is prohibited, there must be lots of other official construction between this field and the wall. Yep. So again, that sense of scale of this mm. being large indeed. Yep. Now, the field is broken up with railings. If Severian doesn't know if the railings are designed to move or to accommodate changing events. He reveals that in all the time he's been autark, this is the only time he ever visited the sanguinary field. But Severian remembers the audience as being silent and languid, which, which makes me think of crowds at a golf game. Mm, that might be a very a very respectful kind of audience, which it mm. seems like. And people know the rules, right? Like we're, we're going right. to find out later that, you know, random people in the crowds will will call out, you know, gentle right, you know, and things right, like right, that. Exactly. So right. it's not so much a crowd of, you know, commoners just hoping to see blood. It doesn't yeah. seem like but it's that something too. very yes. different. That too, <laughs> but, but in a slightly different attitude, I guess. Okay, here's where he starts to discuss the ethics of allowing this to exist. He says that as Autark, he's made no attempt at outlawing dueling or monomachy, as he calls it. He says he's had bigger fish to fry, but he says, quote, whether it is good or evil, and he thinks it is evil, it is surely eradicable in a society such as ours, which must for its own survival hold the military virtues higher than any others, and in which so few of the armed retainers of the state can be spared to police the populace. But he does stop to consider whether the practice is evil. And by that, he seems to mean a social evil rather than a personal 
one, which mm-hmm. he agrees is it is a personal evil. Yeah. He already but the question is, is it a corrosive element in the Commonwealth society? And he's not so sure about that. I'm going to go ahead and read this section. Those ages that have outlawed it, and many hundreds have, by my reading, have replaced it largely with murder. And with just such murders, by and large, as Monomachy seems designed to prevent. Murders resulting from quarrels among families, friends, and acquaintances. In these cases, two die instead of one. For the law tracks down the slayer, a person not by disposition a criminal, but by chance, and slays him as though his death would restore the victim's life. Thus, if, say, a thousand legal combats between individuals resulted in a thousand deaths, which is very unlikely since most such combats do not terminate in death, but prevented 500 murders, the state would be no worse. Further, the survivor of such a combat is likely to be the individual most suited to defending the state and also the most suited to engendering healthy children. While there is no survivor of most murders, and the murderer, were he to survive, is likely to be only vicious and not strong, quick, or intelligent. So Severian is positing some social Darwinism here. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I don't know whether Wolf himself is advocating for dueling. He, he could be just trying to see the point of it in a brutal society like Nessus. It could very well be. I'd like to read this part more as... Wolf intentionally putting this opinion in Severian's mouth at this stage for a few reasons. And the biggest one I think is that we got to remember that Severian is a torturer and is especially as a first time reader, you're just watching him be a torturer and still kind of feel bad about having left his guild, but still he's never at all really expressed any opinions about whether or not torture is good or evil. Right. Um, and we know that he's going to completely change his mind, but hopefully, especially the first time you're reading this and not used to Severian as a character, you still got to be in the back of your mind sometimes thinking, well, here's this torture. Why, you know, he's still a terrifying guy and other people are, are afraid of him. And is he still someone I should be rooting for or whatever? Um, you get this point then. You get this reference where you're reminded all of a sudden, oh, yeah, that's right. Severian said he's going to become Autark. And as Autark, now he's got a totally different perspective than... Severian has up to this point that we've seen because now he's making pretty clear moral statements that, yeah, I think honestly, you know, killing someone is evil. It's like you said, as a personal evil, he just comes pretty much right out and says, yeah, which I, I think it is. But then he also says now though, there, there are other levels here. There are other layers and it's, it's a Severian who's really thinking through whether or not we agree with him. On, on dueling, he's really trying to think through, okay, for a personal reason, you could never, you know, this could be an awful thing, but there are possible, possibly social reasons where it might be more instrumental to perform this. Whatever we think about the actual issues, this is a Severian whose approach to moral issues is so totally different from the young, naive kid who we've seen so far, right? Who is still, for the most part, pretty self-obsessed. And I feel like that's a key that you're supposed to realize that that the Severian who's writing this is in a different place than the Severian who's going through it. Mm-hmm. And that's a difference that I don't think, especially early on in the book, doesn't come up as much because we we just aren't used to seeing that because he's still all caught up in, you know, falling in love with Asia and, and feeling bad about Thecla and whatnot. But it 
to me, when I read this part again, it reminds me that it's, I should be keeping a little bit of distance between what young naive Severian does and the writer who's writing about it and to think, okay, well, are there ways that, that, you know, the real narrator Severian is maybe a little more mature or if not necessarily mature, at least more subtle <laughs> about, <laughs> about, you know, discriminating about all these things. And I feel like that's in the end, as much as is the sort of issue of dueling itself is interesting. I really feel like it's Wolf signaling that, Hey, this guy's going to grow up in a lot of ways. Hmm. And we might not necessarily like the kind of guy he grows into. Cause here's someone who is saying, you know what, honestly, I can see why dueling is good for society, you know, and most people nowadays would not agree with that. So we might be saying, okay, well, what kind of person or leader is he going to come into? But at least we can kind of get to see his perspective on things and how maybe he gets a solid moral sense of what's right personally, but then he's also a very practical guy at the same time as a leader. I don't know. I just, I feel like there's all of those things are kind of signals that Wolf may be giving us to remind us that Severian is going to change from the kind of young boy that he is. I think you're right about the purpose of this inside this book, but I also think Wolf just really likes doing it. Wolf likes to point out how how social convention and absolute morality are not necessarily the same thing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. In Soldier of the Mist, in the introduction, he makes an argument for taking slaves from captives in battle that the alternative would be for them to just execute them, have mass slaughter. Mm -hmm. And in The Wizard Knight, he makes a argument for the value of trial by champion as a way of preserving honor. Mm -hmm. So I see this as, as somewhat the same thing. I just think he likes doing it. <laughs> I think so too. And it's, it's fun. It's, it's one of those places too, where I think sometimes Wolf gets that, that reputation of being not, not, I don't want to say conservative, but more that Uber mm -hmm. macho guy or something like that in a lot of the <laughs> ways that, that he's done. But at the same time, he makes a, a decent point. Like what if we actually could formalize this and only those two people could be hurt or damaged by this and and then even throw some Darwinianism in there and in the sense that at least you wouldn't have the conniving people be the ones who always survive. Right. Yeah. There's, I mean, honestly, there's some merit to the argument. So you can always take those as, as two ways. And and I think it's, it's tempting. Yeah. To say that this is exactly, this is just Wolf sort of going off on a tangent and saying, yeah, I think we should bring dueling back, but I think he's too smart to have just said that it's, mm -hmm. it's also really supposed to be telling us, I feel like a lot about Severian. Right. Yeah, I think you're right. But then, even after Severian makes his argument for the social practicality of dueling to prevent murders, he wraps it all up with, and yet, how readily this practice lends itself to intrigue. Yeah. And I suppose he's thinking about the trap that Agia and Agilus have laid for yeah. him. Oh, yeah. It's also just a really cool transition. They, they use it as a method to perform a kind of legal murder and robbery. Definitely. Definitely. And one other thing, too, that I think is important to put here is this is Severian on the eve of going off to take the test and being the epitome of Earth and still having this apparent split between a kind of personal morality and, like you said, maybe a social or a sense of the social good. And it's... I feel like you could push this in a few ways to really make some decisions and, and judgments maybe about Severian and what 
what kind of savior or what kind of epitome he's supposed to be of earth. Cause I, like I said, if, if a lot of people look at this and think that he's making a bad decision here or, or saying, yeah, some evils are okay. Then one question might be like, well, is he really supposed to then be the epitome of earth? Mm-hmm. What does that mean? Um, and that could bring a lot of problems. So I don't necessarily have a single answer or solution at this point, but I, I like to think that Wolf intentionally put this here as a bit of a, uh, a bit of a challenge. It's something that, of course, this whole book is set up to do, that here's someone who is awful in all kinds of ways, starts off as a torturer, but gets better over time, but never becomes perfect by any stretch of the imagination. There's nothing, I don't think Severian or Wolf would ever claim that Severian is a flawless guy. Right. Um, but here's a moment where it's right before he goes on the trip and he's saying things that don't necessarily seem particularly Christ-like. <laughs> and, and I, that's very intentional. I feel like right. to really challenge us on what we, what we think about Severian. Well, he's a man who has to make a decision among a lot of bad options. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. And I think that's part of it. I mean, we can talk about the sort of theology in the end, but yeah, I mean, there's, there's a lot here about how awful things lead to good things. Yeah. So as they approach the combat areas, they hear the combatants calling out their names, quote, above the trilling of the hylas. Hylas are tree frogs. It's no more complicated than that. But the name does have a mythical context. The family of frogs were named after Hercules' servant and lover, Hylas, who during the journey of Argo was abducted by water nymphs who just took a fancy to him. And he was never found. Hercules stayed to look for him. And that's why he dropped out of that epic. Anyway, <laughs> the combatants shout their names. Cadro of the 17 Stones. That's an interesting one because this is Agilus in disguise. If you believe that Agia and Agilus are manipulators for the Megatherians, then this is a good handle for you. Other than a girl in House Azure being 17 years old, this is the second reference to the number 17 in this yep. book. And the last time in Shadow of the Torturer. As I think I've explained in the comment sections previously, there are good mathematical reasons for why Wolf chose the number 17 to associate with the Megatherians. In case I didn't talk about it, I'll provide a link to the Reddit post where I explained it in the show notes. Yep. Also, the name Kadro. Usually, but not always, the etymology of the name doesn't seem to provide any insight into why it was selected. But in this case, the most credible original meaning of the name, this fake name that Agilus is using, is Battlefield. So 17, of course, is like you said, there's all kinds of reasons there. It's also just a number that Wolf liked to use for unlucky things or negative mm-hmm. things a lot, not just in, in New Sun, but in a lot of the stories as well. But why the stones? That was what I wasn't sure. What what the what might the stones be? Well, another name for stone is seed. So getting back to like the, the it could black be those beans. black beans again. <laughs> yeah. It could well be. There's also the the well, I don't know. I was gonna say there's also the seed or the that she hands him, but mm. um but that's that doesn't really connect to the Megatherian. Maybe that's the seventeenth maybe he's the seventeenth. Maybe one. so. That's it. That's the 17th one. But yeah, stone could be seeds. I wasn't sure of anything else. I was trying to make, is there any connection to the stone town? Um, I was thinking, you know, Stonehenge type mm-hmm. things. I 
was trying to come up with something. But otherwise, I didn't really have anything good for why the stones. So people keep going on. Sabas of the Parted Meadow. Laurentia of the House of the Harp. This is a woman. Incidentally, Laurentia is not going to get satisfaction tonight. Her opponent will not show up. Cadro of the 17 Stones is still calling out his name, and this declares that he has arrived for the duel, and by continuously calling out his name, he's saying his opponent has not. In this case, Cadro of the 17 Stones is Agilis in disguise. He keeps calling out his name until Severian calls out his, and he does keep calling out his name as Aji explains what it means. So, and so does Laurentia of the House of the Harp. Severian describes the scene at once beautifully and indecipherably. <laughs> Quote, the vanishing sun whose disc was now a quarter concealed behind the impenetrable blackness of the wall had dyed the sky with gamboge and cerise, vermilion and lurid violet. These colors falling upon the throng of monomachists and loungers, much as we see the aureate beams of divine favor fall on heriarchs in art, lent them an appearance insubstantial and thaumaturgic, as though they had been produced a moment before by the flourish of a cloth and would vanish into air again at a whistle. Gamboge is reddish yellow. Cerise is purplish red. So when he says, when he follows that up with vermilion and lurid violet, he's actually trying to define what he meant by Gamboge and Cerise. <laughs> Herarchs are religious authorities. And again, thaumaturgic means like a miracle worker. But I love all those colors because we think of all the colors in a sunset, but here everything is deep on that side of the spectrum, right? Mm -hmm. Like violets and reds. And so I'm just trying to imagine, yeah, all the colors of a sunset, but instead of the, the pink and pastel, we've got like deep, dark reds yeah. through it. And it just seems so cool. But then to describe it as, yeah, as light coming in and shining on saints. Um, but in this case, it's not saints, but it's loungers and people who are about to kill each other. <laughs> right. It's not a holy light at this point. It's a, it's, I mean, he has just said that this practice could be evil in many ways. Right. And so it's falling on that. And the insubstantiality of it, too. The flourish right. of a cloth and would vanish into the air again at a whistle. Yeah. So cool. While this goes on, Severian and Najia here, from somewhere nearby, we heard the choking death makes in a man's throat. Which, I don't know, maybe the fighting has already started and yeah, Sabbath of so. the parted meadow has done departed <laughs> <laughs> but yeah and it's just thrown in there right in between right. dialogue which is so we're cool. already seeing uh, yeah the, the death has already taken place and they haven't even gotten started so severian tells Asia to call out severian of the manachin tower but Asia suddenly isn't participating either because she doesn't want to be publicly associated with severian because she's plotting against him or because she's developed misgivings about killing him of course i think the latter she says, I'm not your servant. Ball it out yourself if you want it bald. Don't look at me like that, Severian. I wish we hadn't come. There you go. I'm not going to say this comes out of out of the blue because of everything we've been talking about. But just 
a few pages ago, she was sitting there worried that Severian was going to find out what she was doing and wouldn't go through with whatever she was going to. And now all of a sudden she's not backing out of it, but she's so hesitant to help. Yeah. She's not, yeah. She's not facilitating at all. Yeah. She is absolutely conflicted at this point. Yeah. Very much. She can't decide which one she wants to take, Mm -hmm. but she does finally do it in a very hostile way. Remember they're in the middle of a breakup. (laughs) Severian, Severian of the torturers, Severian of the Citadel of the tower of pain, death, Death has come! Severian smacks her just below the ear, and she hits the ground. Pretty risky for the people around them, because she's still carrying the Avern. Mm-hmm. And then we get something interesting. I'll just read this conversation. Dorcas gripped my arm. You ought not to have done that, Severian. It was only the flat of my hand. She'll be all right. She will hate you even more. Then you think she hates me now? Dorcas did not answer. What do you think of that? Yeah, there's all kinds of stuff going on here. There's the frustration. There's also this weird sense that Severian didn't realize that she was mad at him. There's also the sense that it's all right that he did what he did just to to smack her down like that. He doesn't realize she hates him. Yeah, I know. He doesn't see hate in her. And we've talked about how maybe she was in love with him and had this crush on him and things like that. But he doesn't understand the depth and complexity of what's going on here. Right. Of love and hate and how you can, mm -hmm. yeah. How you can love something and hate it because you love it. Yeah. And Dorcas does. Yeah. She doesn't even answer when he asks, does she think she hates me? She doesn't answer because it's a complicated answer. Yeah. So Dorcas is already being uh, much more insightful into relationships than Severian is going to be for a long time. Right. And that could be one reason why she eventually moves away from him, uh, just because he may not be growing up fast enough for her. Of course, she's older in a certain sense. She has some things to do, too. And- yeah, absolutely. But so, so much happens just in those few little reactions back and forth there that it's so, I mean, it's economically written, right? But it's mm-hmm. but it yeah. tells us so much about all three of these characters, I feel like. Right. Finally, Severian says someone carrying an Avern some distance away starts coming toward them. So the fighting area is fenced off with an opening at either end. It's 15 strides in diameter. If a pace is a foot, I suppose a stride would be a yard, three feet. So a circle, 45 feet in diameter. The E4, that is the judge, says something that kind of reminds me of Thunderdome. (laughs) He says, the adjudication of the Avern has been offered and accepted. Here is the place. The time is now. This is not a referee job I would want. I mean, (laughs) one thing to get like punched when you're a boxer. It's another thing when they're swinging Avern leaves all over the place. Or any other type of weapon. I suppose that's not all they do. That's the only thing I wondered too. Like if they're throwing the Avern leaves and there's a crowd in a circle around this, this is terribly dangerous. Oh, well, that comes up. Yes. Mm-hmm. Well, you just hang right on. <laughs> <laughs> well, now they have to choose whether to fight with whatever they're wearing or naked or armed, whatever. Dorcas demonstrates that while she's a bit of a daisy, she's actually a pretty good advocate. Mm-hmm. Better than Severian has ever been for himself. She says, naked, that man is in armor. The guy Severian's fighting, uh, the E4 calls him the Septentrion, is wearing his elaborate helm that has already been described. It leaves his ears exposed to better hear the grazel 
and orders. A grazel is a signaling horn during battle. He doesn't speak, that is, you know, Agilus. He just slowly shakes his head no with his helmet on. And, quote, in the shadow behind the cheek piece, I thought I saw a narrow band of black and tried to recall where I had seen such a thing before. So here we get back to the black bands that so much is made of and are never explained. Yeah. Although I guess there is an explanation in the sense that it's what starts to help him identify that this is Agilus, but that's never, that's not a real explanation. <laughs> there are so many other but, things. He could have had like a tattoo or a birthmark yeah, or something. It's what use he put it to. And of course, we also got to mention that, yeah, this is another point where Severian knows he should remember something, but he's having trouble really mm. bringing it up. But let's be honest, he's had a big day. That's right. He doesn't have time to ref- go back into his mind and find the, the moment and wander about in his memories to yeah. bring it back. And a lot has happened since in between then. So, yep. So the E4 says, you refuse, Hipparch? And Agilus in disguise says, the men of my country do not go naked save in the presence of women alone. But Dorcas... Hold up for one second, because he says the men of my country. And that's one of the only times that we really get any sense of, like, different regions. Like, mm-hmm. in the rest of it, there's, there's the Ashians, and then there's... I mean, people from the north or the south or people from around Lake Diaturna, but the word country, I mean, that, that could well just mean the people of my area or the people yeah, my region. From- yeah. It used to be that people, when they referred to their state, talked about their country. Their country. Yeah. But it's interesting to me that, you know, he's talking about this as different customs that mm-hmm. maybe these other people aren't aware of, but here he right, is. Yeah, exactly. And it's, it's just, it just stands out because it doesn't, it's not something that usually comes up when he meets other people quite so much. It does in certain cases. Um, Some of the stories in the storytellers in in Citadel, the people are from different areas that seem to have different traditions and things like that, but it's not a huge emphasis on the rest of it. So, but apparently believable enough. Yeah. (laughs) Everyone else is okay. Sure. But Dorcas totally screwing up this con. She says, he wears armor. This man has not even a shirt. Her voice (laughs) always so soft before, rang in the twilight like a bell. Like a bell. So we have the clanging of Malrubius's spoon when Severian is drowning. We have the bell of Master Olton's voice. We have the bells that chimed when Severian entered the rag shop. And now the bell of Dorcas's voice. I'm not ready to propose a systematic interpretation for these bells, but at the end of Earth of the New Sun, the bells are all but declared to be signals of the end of the world. If nothing else, they signal that something big is about to happen. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> something new is about to happen. We have a we have a a change, a turn yep. in the plot. Mm-hmm. And incidentally, this isn't a spoiler, but at the beginning of the Book of the Long Sun, the story, which is kind of an end of the world story, begins with the chiming of a bell at the end of a ball game. Agius agrees to remove his chest armor. When he does, Severian sees the torso of a skinny youth. He expected it to be like a massive barrel chest, like Master Gerloe's. But he won't remove his helmet, because then the game would be up. Very little is made of it here, but he's also wearing gauntlets, and he doesn't mm-hmm. take those off either. 
And it is possible here too that what the armor that he's wearing is more like costume armor because it's not obviously, yeah. obviously fitted for him in any way. Yeah, but it could still cover and maybe protect him from the from a leaf. Yeah. yeah. Ajlis says, "I can only say that I'm instructed not to remove it. That is his helmet." The E4 makes a strange request to Severian. He says, none of us would desire, I think, to embarrass the Hipparch, and still less the personage, I do not say whom it may be, that he serves. I believe the wisest course would be to allow you, sir, some compensating advantage. Have you one to suggest? Now, Aja gives the clearest evidence that she has fallen inexplicably in love with Severian and wants him to end the combat. She's not coming clean. This is that light and dark side of her nature. But she wants Severian to take this chance to end the game. She says, refuse the combat, Severian, or reserve your advantage until you need it. Now, <laughs> refusing the combat is a smart thing to do. I have no idea what point in the next few minutes Severian could claim an advantage that would help him. That's nuts. Yeah. Dorcas who is right at that moment preparing the Avern, agrees. She says, refuse the combat. But Severian is an idiot. He says, <laughs> I've come too far to turn back now. <laughs> yeah. As his compensating advantage, he chooses to wear his torturer's mask. Stupid Severian. <laughs> he doesn't even know if it will protect him from the Avern leaves. But when he puts it on, everyone recognizes it as at least a Carnifix's mask. And everyone gasps when he puts it on. I like too that we get the detail here that I don't think we're given anywhere else that it's leather, but stiffened with strips of bone. Oh yeah, and yeah, that's right. I don't think we get that earlier. I'm pretty sure we don't, but that's one of the only sort of real descriptions of the actual mask in detail. But, and I always wonder, is that on the outside? Is that somehow the strips of bone woven into the material? Is it visible? Is it human or... bone? Yeah. The E4 says that he can only take the Avern into the fight. So he's going to have to give the sword to someone. This was ostensibly the moment that Ajia and Agilis were waiting for. She would take Severian's sword and own it when he was killed by his own Avern. Agia has told Severian to refuse the combat. I suppose it was too late to tell him, oh yeah, and you better wear gloves. So she just leaves without the sword. Right. And significantly, Severian looks for her to give it to her. Like, I, yeah. if that's the way I read that line, he was going to hand it to Agia, not to Dorcas. Right. No, she's ostensibly his second, right? She's yeah. the one who's supposed to be helping him out and advising him. So instead, Severian gives it to Dorcas. When he as he takes the Avern. And then the E4 says, begin. Agilus wastes no time. A leaf whizzes by Severian's ear. Agilus in disguise, moving closer to Severian, holding his own Avern from the stem beneath the lowest leaves with his left hand, and his right hand is reaching out like he's trying to steal Sev's Avern. Remember that Agia warns Severian about this, and this is the strongest evidence that this whole plan is concocted and well-practiced because she's warned him in advance about something. He's acting like that's what he might do. The idea is that Severian will keep the plant close to his body. Agia's warning and Agilis' actions encourage this. He's not wearing gloves like Agilis is, 
and the warmth of his hand will wake up the flower, which will attack and poison Severian. Mm -hmm. One thing I have to admit I don't quite understand tactically here is how you could actually grab the Avern from somebody else. You can't. Without no. getting... Or was that, so you're saying that was just a, that's not a, a strategy. A There's no okay. way that's a strategy. You would, okay, you good. would be killed at, at best. You would kill both of you, but no, it's just a, it's just a strategy to make, keep hit that Avern close to him so he him. gets poisoned. Now, how long is five breaths? Because that's how long they circle each other. Severian tries to hit Agilus's outstretched hand with his Avern. Agilus counters with his own plan. Then Severian counters with his plan. Then, Zavarian realizes that the best way to hold it is above his head, like it's a sword. Agilus can't grab it. Severian can slash with it. The leaves are in reach to grab and throw. Severian plucks a leaf and flings it at Agilus's face. And although he's protected by his helm, Agilus dodges. And sure enough, Craig, the crowd behind him scatters. And then he <laughs> does it again. And again, this time the leaf and Agilus's leaf hit each other in midair between them. And when they do, they don't act like daggers striking each other in the air. They writhe and slash at each other to ragged strips before they even reach the ground. They're strips of, quote, blackish green that turn to a hundred colors and spun like a child's top dot, dot, dot. Severian doesn't realize it, but one of Agilus's leaves have just hit him. Now, I do have a question. As I was reading it this time, the way that description of the two leaves intermingling and doing weird things, I started to wonder, was that actually what happened when the two leaves interacted? Or had Severian already been hit, maybe, and this is something like the beginning of a hallucination? I don't think so, because when he gets up, he sees them on the ground still chewing at each other. Okay, that was the one part that made me think that. But I, as I was reading it this time, I wondered, hmm, is was he hit earlier? And then he's hmm. having these, this odd description just because it's so strange the way it's described. It could just be these alien leaves, of course. And I yeah. think probably that's what it is. But I was also wondering if that was signaling that something hmm. else had happened a little earlier and it was another part of the strange thing that's about to happen. Yeah, well, that's a very interesting description of what's happening from his point of view. Mm -hmm. I'll read it. Something or someone was pressing against my back. It was as though an unknown stood close behind me, his spine against mine, exerting a slight pressure. I felt cold and was grateful for the warmth of his body. Now, Craig, in the decades that I've been reading this story, I've always interpreted this as Severian collapsing backward on the ground. And this is his sensation that he's been poisoned as he's dying on the ground with it against his back. Mm -hmm. But now I believe in the first Severian theory. Now I believe all the miracles of the claw are done by the first Severian. I just have a very different perspective. This is the first Severian being sensed. He is at this point interacting with Severian while circumfused to the borders of Bria, the way Sancha's cat is with Sancha. That is why these two Severians can interact without imploding. The claw glows blue when Severian is acting, like the blue light in Father Aniri's presence chamber. The reason, the reason it glows, I'd say, is because the thorn has Severian's blood on it. First, Severian's blood. People have often surmised that Severian's resurrection is due to the claw being in his saber tash 
without him knowing. And that's a really deep misdirection on Wolf's part, since for a first-time reader, they have no inkling that Severian already resurrected Triskley without the use of the claw. But whether you agree with me or with the traditional consensus of what's going on, we can probably agree that the claw right now is glowing like crazy inside that saber tash. <laughs> so we'll talk about first Severian a little bit more, but a couple of questions that just we should ask just because they've been thrown around a lot. So one is, did he actually die? Did he die and get resurrected or did the claw keep him from dying? Um, now, maybe that's splitting hairs. I don't know, but I know that that is an issue that comes up a lot of times especially if we're trying to think about Severian and his identity and whether or not he has been resurrected or whether or not he's got some kind of straight timeline or whether this is just one of many times when he's been resurrected, possibly by drowning in the guile before as well. Well, if he died and just had no memory of what happened while he was dead, then he wouldn't have known that he had died, right? It, it would have been, mm -hmm. it was, it was a short time anyway. If he's dying, and there actually is evidence that when you get hit with a leaf, it takes a while to die. We'll get to that in a minute. So if I was going to guess, I'd say he didn't die. He was dying and then was suddenly healed. Mm -hmm. Another thing, too, is that sense of how he describes something else. So even if it is first Severian, that feeling that he has you know, we, we've talked before about the mechanics of, well, where is first Severian all this? Is he, is he there metaphysically or is he there? Like as one of the guys in the crowd doing something, you know, we don't really know the mechanics. I don't think he is probably literally lying on his back under the girder on his stomach, under the ground and pushing on Severian. But it does make an interesting idea here that what Severian feels is kind of like a weird mirror image of himself, right? A mm. warm mirror image that to have, Someone on his back, spine against spine, especially just having come from that whole, not too many chapters ago about talking about mirrors and traveling and whatnot. Is there something about reflections and mirrors that have to do with how resurrection takes place or how healing takes place, or at least just how the action of the claw works? That might be an interesting thing to follow just because he does talk about a spine pressing on my back. And I don't necessarily know what to make of it, but the image seems readily available. Yeah. Well, I mean, <laughs> if you believe that the first, that it's the first of Aaron who is his mirror image and that he is in father Aniri's mirror world and mm -hmm. that's how he's interacting, then, well, yeah, you have all kinds of mirrors there. Yeah. Yeah, that is true. And if it's not first Severian and we are just going with the old idea of the claw um, that is, is bringing him back here, then it's important to think about what we learn about the claw later, that the claw really is just basically channeling Severian's own power as, mm -hmm. as the new son, that it's not actually doing something literally itself. But then what really is happening here is that Severian is saving himself, not through first Severian, but through through just his own power that seems right. to be reaching through time or across time to help him. And that could well be two. The question then we need to think about is, okay, this is one of those times where the claw is working without Severian having any 
will to make it work because we know that later on he's going to try over and over again to make it work and do things and he just doesn't have that control he doesn't even know it's here and it's working so this is one point where you know the place that it affects him most directly just like it did with dorcas are times when he's not even trying to do Mm -hmm. it which is definitely what adds into the whole mystery of how the claw functions how it works and you know like we've said before, the advantage of thinking of first Severian doing something here is that we can assume that first Severian hopefully knows how all of these things are going to fit together right. to get Severian up to the point. If we don't have that, then it starts to get very confusing about the motivations for how the claw works. Obviously, he's got to stay alive in order to keep going with his whole uh, thing like that. But also, yeah, it's just then a question of, well, when does this power kick in and how does it kick in and why, and why does it work at certain times? And there's no anxiety. You know, you could say, well, it happens because he's so anxious or because, you know, he's stressed, but Severian, you know, at least consciously, he's not aware that there's any kind of struggle. Yeah. And all we know at this point is that the the feeling that he has is that someone else is with him, not a force, not something, but an actual person is there with him and that he feels that warmth. I think that's the only time when the claw works or does something that it's described. He describes it as being in the presence of another person. Mm-hmm. I think warmth he'll describe, light will certainly describe when the claw actually functions. But this is the only time that it's really portrayed as another person and that stands out to me. And I have, I've got a lot of questions about why, why he describes that feeling here, or if it's just a way to describe the feeling he had when he was lying on the ground. Right. But yeah, but it's unique. So while he's, you know, dying on the ground, he hears Dorcas's voice far away. Severian, Severian, won't anyone help him? Let me go. Then Severian says he hears the peal of a carillon. A carillon is an instrument, think of a pipe organ, keyboard, you know, but instead of pipes, you have all these bells that ring when you press a key. That's what he hears. And yes, bells again. Mm -hmm. He also sees an aurora in the sky. The colors, which I had taken to be those of the struggling leaves, were in the sky instead, where a rainbow unrolled beneath the aurora. The world was a great Pascal egg, crowded with all the colors of the palette. This is the second reference to Pascal in this book so far. Remember, Domnina in Father Aniri's chamber thinks mm-hmm. about Pascal Campbell's. I won't go into it again except to say that Pascal is Easter, and it seems to have retained many of the rituals and liturgical elements like the candles and the Easter eggs. And of course, Easter is about the death and resurrection of Christ. Mm-hmm. So, so here we have, if I would, thematic evidence that Severian does actually die at that moment, if sure. only briefly. I also like the rainbow and the, all the colors of the palette showing up here, which is mm-hmm. another way to talk about white light, you know, the white fountain. The- right. All those things are there. But as though the sky he's looking up at is an egg. So maybe he's from looking at it from the inside and it's mm-hmm. see-through or something. So he can hear someone say, is he dead? And then someone says, that's it. Those things always kill. Unless you want to see them drag him off. He says he hears the Septentrion's voice. 
that's what Severian knows Agilus as. But even then, he recognizes it as oddly familiar. Mm-hmm. Anyway, the voice says, I claim Victor right to his clothing and weapons. Give me that sword. And then, total jump scare, I sat up. <laughs> <laughs> he can see the leaves struggling at his boot. Agilus, in disguise, is standing there with his avern. Severian was going to ask what happened, but then he sees a blood-stained leaf tip fall from his chest. Agilus lifts his avern to hit Severian with it, but the E4 jumps between them and says, Gentle right, gentle right, soldier. Let him stand up and get his weapon. Okay, so Wolf actually defines gentle right in Castle of the Otter, Castle of Days. He defines it as a convention in combat between two gentlemen for a man who is knocked down to get up and retrieve his weapon before resuming. This is still true in boxing matches, but not UFC fights, that <laughs> if a fighter is knocked down, the other can't just keep pummeling him. And it is, it is one of those moments that goes back to his argument about how Monomachy was slightly more civilized. and Better than yeah, murder, at least yeah. you At least you get a fighting chance. Yeah. Uh, incidentally, the word gentle meaning of noble rank or family goes back to the 1200s, at least. It comes from the word for family or clan, which I think demonstrates how class in Europe arose from prominent, powerful families who just thought of themselves as better than other people and had to adhere to a higher standard. And then eventually, gentle came to mean behaving like you were of noble rank. And that's how we get the term gentleman. Mm Mm-hmm. Anyway, Severian has to get up and get his avern. His legs are weak. The avern is near Dorcas, who is fighting now with Agia. Apparently, when Severian got hit with the leaf, Agia decided to come back for the sword, just so it wouldn't be a total loss. Agilus in disguise thinks Severian not dying is really bad form in a competition <laughs> like this. He says, he should be dead. <laughs> and he for considers the rule book and says, he is not. Wait till he gets his weapon. (laughs) Now he picks up his avern, but it's not really a plant anymore. He says, for an instant, I felt I had grasped the tail of some cold-blooded but living animal. It seemed to stir in my hand, and the leaves rattled. Ajia is shouting, sacrilege! I have no idea what she means by that. One thing I wondered about the avern rattling and feeling like it, it moved or something made me wonder he's... When they first see the flowers, he talks about them seeming otherworldly. And I just was wondering if this was suggesting that something about him having been touched with the power of the White Fountain was that the Avern was really evil and it was reacting to being that close in the proximity of some miraculous thing happening like that. I don't know. Um, But and it it could just be a way to describe this alien thing still in the middle of everything else. That's kind of what I think, too. But And through the warmth of his hand. Right. And that's why. That is true. And it could just be that which he's described before. So Severian looks at Agia, then he looks at the Septentrion in his helmet. He can detect terror in every line of his body. The Septentrion looks at Severian, then he looks at Agia, and then he turns around and runs to the opening at the other end of the fenced fighting area. The crowd is blocking his way. He's totally panicked. He starts whipping the crowd with his avern left and right, and the people are screaming. Now that's a good argument against Monica yeah. right there. <laughs> It's it's like getting the you know, first row at a Gallagher concert or something like that. Yeah. <laughs> at least if you go to a duel with Averns. Yeah. Stay far away. Meanwhile, Severian's Avern is moving around and pulling him backwards. The Avern is gone. 
and suddenly, and then Dorcas has grabbed his hand, hears Agia scream, Agilus, and then he hears the woman, Laurentia of the House of the Harp, still calling for her challenger. And now, uh, Craig, the, the chapter ends here in the middle of all this chaos, and the next one begins in that frustrating way that this volume will end and the next mm-hmm. one will begin. With what happens now and immediately after only being dripped out little by little, I want to skip to Severian's conversation with Dorcas in the next chapter, chapter 28, The Carnifex. I want to clarify what's going on here, and then we'll take the rest of the chapter next time. But I want to cut through some of Wolf's tendency to occlude. All right. But I will say it is fun to end it this way because you just have <laughs> no idea. It is a good cliffhangery kind of thing, but it's just, it's so fun. And, but I also like the fact that it ends with that echo of another person still calling for a duel that may mm-hmm. not happen, which again <laughs> suggests to me that it's like, this didn't need to happen this way. Um, now that may not be true of the whole larger plot of setting things in motion, but just that, that one, that battle, that duel that still isn't going to happen. Um, it's still sort of ringing in the background of, you know, you could right, have run, exactly. you could yeah. have gone and Agilus and Asia could have run too, or could have done something different that, yeah, exactly. it's just sort of a nice way to end a tragic thing like this. So Dorcas later, when Severian is recuperating, she'll explain what happened. She, she says almost at once Severian was hit by a leaf in the chest it took far longer to tell it than to do it. And in fact, remember that Severian did a couple jabs at Agilus with mm-hmm. the Avern and threw a couple of leaves and then he was hit. So yeah, it happened really quickly. Dorcas says, I remember seeing the leaf, a horrible thing, like a flatworm made of iron, half in your body and turning red as it drank your blood. Yikes. Then it fell away. Dorcas says the next few moments were really strange. It was as though everything I had seen had been wrong, but it wasn't wrong. I remember what I saw. You got up again and you looked, I don't know, as if you were lost or some part of you was far away. After Severian got up and got his Avern, Agilus, still in the skies, his Avern was still inert, but Severian's had begun to writhe and open its flower completely. Remember the blossoms, they were already half opened, mm-hmm. looking like a rose blossom. But now it opened completely and there was something underneath, something else, a face like the face poison would have if poison had a face. Severian didn't notice this, however. The face began to curl toward him slowly like it was waking up. Agilus in disguise was just staring at him in disbelief. And then he turned and ran away. But the people blocked him because they didn't want him to leave until someone got killed. So that was when he started whipping people with his Avern. Dorcas says, it wasn't just that he struck them. The Avern struck at them. After the first two, like a snake, people who only got cut by the leaves didn't die right away. They screamed and some of them ran and fell and got up and ran again, as if they were blind, knocking other people down. We'll find out in two chapters that nine people were killed. Finally, a big man hit Agilus from behind, a woman who had been fighting somewhere else. I'm pretty sure that was poor Laurentia of the House of the Harp. She comes with a brachamard and cut the avern, splitting it in two, 
right down, vertically down the stem. A bracamard is a sword that curves upward, like a cutlass or a falchion. Dorcas knows something about swords. Some men hold Ajlis and Laurentia wax him on the helmet with her sword. Dorcas sees the Avern bending towards Severian's face. He's still mostly out of it. So she takes Severian's sword. Because of the way it's made, it's heavy at first, and then it becomes light as the mercury flows toward the pommel. And then she chops the Avern down the stem vertically, like Laurentia did with all the strength she had. Fortunately, she forgot to take the sheath off. So she only knocked the Avern out of his hand instead of chopping his hand off. Then she takes his hand and leads him away from the fields. She notices how cold it is when the sun goes down. So she wraps Severian in his cloak, which, Craig, seems to warm him. So maybe this confirms Michael Swanwick's theory that the cloak doesn't just absorb visible light, but radioactive mm, light as yep. well. So it's yep. warm when it came out of the like when it came out of the dryer or something. So they get back to the city proper, but there's no place for Severian to lie down. There's just big houses with terraces and balustrades. A balustrade is an ornamental barrier consisting of, well, balusters, like columns. Mm -hmm. Anyway, there's only street and no place to get off the street. But some soldiers ride up and ask if Severian is a Carnifex, a fellow government employee. Dorcas doesn't know what a Carnifex is, but she knows what a torture is because she used to live just south of the Citadel. She tells them he's a torturer. To her, soldiers and tortures are essentially the same government department. So she thinks it makes sense they would help them, and she's right. They try to get Severian on their animals, Destriers, but he falls off. So they make a stretcher from a cape and two lances. They put the lances through the stirrup straps of two Destriers and carry Severian between them. Dorcas won't get into the saddle with the soldiers, so she just walks along talking to Zavarian, even though she doesn't think he's hearing her. And that, Craig, is the end of the events that night. That face in the Avern, do you have any ideas about that? As if it was the face of poison itself. Well, it's like an ugly creature. It's a creature. It's not a flower. It, it looks, we, we think of it looking analogous to a flower, but it's not a flower. It's an animal. I don't know what it lives on, though. The thing I was thinking about, though, is that that's kind of like an evil green man, right? Like we, oh, yeah. we have a plant and animal creature, but here's one that's just still carnivorous, which I guess is kind of the anti point of the green man, right? Like the whole point mm -hmm. of the green man is so that you don't have to kill other creatures anymore. It's more more symbiotic. It's not even clear that it's carnivorous. I don't even. Yeah, or just although murderous. the warmth, it does bend toward warmth. So maybe it does potentially. Right. And that goes well with all the other sort of alien creatures we're going to find out, like the nodules, right, which seek out right. warmth. And, mm -hmm. and so it's definitely fits with that kind of dangerous alien thing that we have. But um, and of course, something that is black and feeds off warmth is is definitely we're, we're <laughs> dealing with sort of typical evil kinds of symbols here like that. Right. Or Severian's cloak. Yeah, it's another one of those things where you got the symbols that work in different ways. So right. I do like that, that with Swanwick's idea, I hadn't thought about that in the nodules before, about how they're similar, oh, yeah. now, but used in different ways. Huh, I like that. We'll have to come back to that. But but yeah, so that was the, the one thing that stands out there to me is that we get the Avern as seeming even more malicious after, in right. the way that, that Dorcas describes it. Yeah. Scary flower. <laughs> I don't think I'll grow any. <laughs> All right, so next episode is the Carnifex. Severian 
is recuperating and he gets a job, his first job. Uh, oh, this is also the end of Severian's first day since he got out of bed with Baldanders. It's mm-hmm. it's just over, what, maybe a day and a half since he left the tower. It has been a very long day. Yeah, he must be exhausted. He barely got any sleep. <laughs> So if you have some comments or corrections or elaborations or complaints, you can reach out to us on Facebook at the Rereading Wolf Facebook group or on Reddit at the subreddit or by email at rereadingwolf at gmail.com or on Twitter, Rereading Wolf, or on Instagram or on our YouTube channel and playlist. So many ways you can come and, and reach us. We want to hear you. This doesn't work until you do. <laughs> you can even write your question on a poisoned otherworldly leaf and fling it at us. And <laughs> hopefully it won't kill many innocents along the way. <laughs> What's this in my chest? Oh, look at that. <laughs> it's a favorable review. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> All right. But thank you very much, everyone. And we'll be back next time. Thanks. I put on my black jacket and we walk down to we celebrate the thin line between stupid and brave And the sun beats down so hot that day on a hundred broken souls I put on my black jacket but I'm still cold You don't get what you Get. Oh, did was there anything else about first Severian you wanted to say? No, I don't think. Add, I think. Okay, I think I beat that horse pretty much to death right there. Actually, does give us help with that word Zanaji in Castle of the Otter and Castle of Days. Hang on, let me re-get it. We'll be right back. Yep. Ah.